Hello and welcome. My name is Duncan and this is my Unorthodoxy podcast. What follows is a recording of a talk that I gave to a group of friends at a local coffee shop on the 4th of August 2017 on the subject of the Enneagram. If you've listened to my podcast for a while, you'll know that I did a whole series on the Enneagram earlier this year, but some of what I share here should still be fairly fresh and new to even those who listened to that series. It is, I hope, a good recap for those familiar with the subject of the Enneagram, but also um, I I wanted to make it a decent enough intro to the Enneagram for those who are uninitiated. Apologies, by the way, for the loud coffee machine noises towards the beginning of the talk. Pretty soon uh, those noises die down and, and I'm allowed to say what I need to without too much competition. So, uh, with that out of the way, let's get to it. Well, um, thanks for, for being here. Um, I, I, I actually want to start with some really excellent advice. If you ever want to uh, prepare a talk on the Enneagram in future and you want to fit the Enneagram into an hour, don't do it. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's a really terrible idea. It's like fit, fitting an elephant into a toaster, which may be fun to look at for a little while, but it's not going to work. Um, and at least one of those two things is going to suffer. So my, my job is to give you a kind of overview of the Enneagram. My hope is that I can, in a way for those, by the way, actually let me ask, who of you is familiar with the Enneagram? Okay, those familiar with it, I think, I've been trying to think of those people and think, is there some new kind of insight I can give to those people? But I'm also aware that there are quite a few here who don't know anything about the Enneagram, so I'm also trying to picture that at those people to, to try and introduce the thing. So the short version is the Enneagram is a personality typing system. And there are nine personality types, each has got a name. I'm going to actually obviously go through those one by one. So there are nine personality types. You are one of them. And you, you have been that since you were very, very young, and you will keep that number with you your whole life, but um, hopefully you will grow. So next week, I'm going to focus mo- more on the growth stuff, um, but this is just sort of the, the background. And what I, what I wanted to start with is something that uh, Jerome Wagner says um, uh, in his book, Nine Lenses of the Soul, which I think is such a... A pertinent thing. He says, personality masquerades as our essential self and tricks us into identifying with and believing that a dimension of ourself, one dimension of ourself, is our whole self. We corroborate in this deception as a way of defending our true self from certain vulnerabilities and as a way of compensating for certain imagined shortfalls. So the gist of this is that in a way, your personality is the lie that tells you that this is exactly who you are. So when I say that you are one of the nine Enneagram any, any any types, I'm essentially saying that's who you are not. But you have to own your false self in order to be able to move towards your true self. So that's, that's the basic idea, that we all carry around this, this conscious awareness of, of a certain aspect of our personalities, but we need to be able to, in a way, deepen that and move beyond it. Does that make sense so far? Um, so each of the, the, um, the, the Enneagram is, is divided into, into basically these nine types. They are all grouped in, in pairs of pairs, <laughs> wrong word, of three, uh, in, in triads. There, there is the gut or instinct triad, the head or intellect triad, and then the heart or emotion triad. I'm going to go through those one by one. But the key that I want to use to introduce the Enneagram to you is the key of projection, which is a really fascinating psychological defense mechanism. It's the earliest one we learn. What happens, a little baby will feel in themselves some kind of discomfort, uh, and the d- discomfort maybe doesn't have a name, but it might be something like hunger or a need for warmth or affection. And so the baby cries and it projects their emotion into their parents. And I use that quite deliberately, into their parents. Their parents then feel 
the pain of the infant. And because they don't like feeling this pain, they try and deal with the problem by trying to meet the need that the infant has. And that's something that we use throughout our lives in various ways. And so there are two basic types of projection. The one is as a, an emotional defense mechanism, which we use in various ways. But the, the other type, which is the one I want to focus on, is part of our actual personality structure. Projection is when we take something that is inside us that we don't like, something that we want to disown, and we, we assume it's out there in the world. So, and so we see it in the world, we're more sensitive to that problem because it's actually an internal problem. Uh, it's a little bit like, and, and yet we have in some sense disowned it. We're like a bit of a bit like a projectionist in a cinema at, at the cinema who plays the movie without actually watching it. But we can take a moment to actually look at what's on the screen and to look at what we project. So there is the negative side of projection, the, this this thing inside us that we want to disown that we put onto other people, and I'm going to talk about that in when I talk about each of the types. And then there is the positive uh, version of that, which is that thing in ourselves that we aspire to, uh, what Freud would call the ideal I, the ideal ego. It's the thing out there that we, it, like, wow, I admire that so much. So it can be, um, the thing that irritates you the most is also in some ways the thing that you aspire to correct the most. And with that in mind, I think it's, um, it's helpful just to mention before I get into the kind of details that we are each built with a particular kind of sensitivity. I would say that we're all filters um, of the world in some way. And we're built with a particular sensitivity to certain things. So I'm going to be talking about, for instance, uh, our primary, each type's primary wound. Now that wound may not be inflicted on you as, as much as it is a wound that you perceive has been inflicted on you. Our perceptions actually shape a huge if not everything, um, a huge part of our experience of reality. So I'm not saying, so for instance, uh, we, we kind of might perceive that our parents have treated us in a particular way. But uh, in a family with, with three kids, each kid will have a different perception of their parents. The issue is their particular filter. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our subjectivity, basically. Okay, so that's kind of good background information, and so we can dive into the nine types. And I do want to leave quite a lot of uh, room for questions, because I, I, well, let's hope we get there. Uh, because as I say, I've tried to put a, a, an elephant into a toaster here. So the first triad that I'm going to be dealing with is the gut or instinct triad. This is also known as the anger triad. The, the primary issue for these types is anger. Um, and I have actually termed this the self-reality triad as well. Uh, no other Enneagram teachers call it that, but I think it's a helpful tool because the primary problem for these types is their relationship with reality. There's a, there's a profound sense for these types that they have been disconnected from reality. And so they, they tend to... The two, the two um, stronger types of, of these, the eights and the ones... I'm actually going to be talking about 8, 9, and 1 here, so just so that you know. The 8s and the 1s are, of all the Enneotypes, the most likely to be dualistic thinkers. Either this or that. Very strong lines, very, um, a, a very concrete sense of, of right and wrong, justice and injustice. So that's what they deal with. Anger is, of course, a boundary-setting emotion. And it, the boundary is for other people. It's very important because I think um, the anger types in, all, in, in various ways have a distorted relationship with how boundaries are set. There's some seats at the back there if you would like. And there. So, welcome, by the way. Okay, so um, one of these, so in each of these triads, one type will over-express their primary relationship with instinct or anger, that kind of thing. The other one is going to underexpress it, and one will be ambivalent about that thing. So that's, helpful. that's kind of a helpful trick to, to remember for all of the triads. One overexpresses, one underexpresses, one is ambivalent. 
and that brings me to one. So I'm going to, if you know the Enneagram, it's, it's, an, it's a diagram, it's a circle, and each type is put at, from, sort of at an equal distance from the other types around the circle. And I'm going to start at one and then work backwards. The reason for this will only be cleared next week. <laughs> so there's a, a trailer for you. Um, so I'm going to start with ones, then work through nine, eight, and then seven, and then all the way back to, to two. So I'm leaving twos last, which is a terrible idea. Those of you who are twos will, will understand why. Um, but I'm going to do that because the last shall be first, I hope. Um, okay, so ones operate from the lens of goodness. So if you think of each of these types has a particular lens through which they look at the world. Ones look through the lens of goodness. They're looking for goodness. That manifests mostly in immature types as perfectionism, moralism, and puritanism. So they, the, uh, for each of these types, I want to give you an image. The image for ones is Martin Luther, a one, hammering his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. Um, there's a very strong sense here of action linked to a disproportionately strong sense of right and wrong. There's action, but there's also intellect. So ones are gut types or instinct types that act like head types. So ones are often, I would not be surprised if there are quite a few ones here, but um, there's, a, there's a, a very strong link to intellect for ones. Um, the wounding messages that, or message that ones uh, receive or, or perceive is that their significance comes from being right or good or perfect. So this is what they're attuned to, and as a result, they avoid any kind of imperfection. One of the, those imperfections is anger, which is the primary vice of ones. So they avoid anger like the plague, and what that does is it turns anger into resentment. So with ones, there's a tendency to, to listen. When you listen to them, there's just beneath the surface, there's a kind of resentment for things not being perfect, not being the right way. Um, the projection of ones, so linking to the central theme that I'm adopting, the projection of ones is others are at fault. Others are not doing it the right way. So ones, in, in a sense, do things by the book. If you want something done right and perfect, you kind of need a one. If you're on a plane and the pilot is a one, you're okay. <laughs> like, th there's just things are going to, you know things are going to be done right. A lot of ones are teachers um, because they have this attunement to sort of fixing things. So there is a sense of I can help correct others' faults and I can help them to lead a good life. Now, that plays out in, in a spectrum from being overly critical of others to being incredibly compassionate and open towards others learning to move towards goodness. Um, so the primary vulnerability of ones is criticism. And that is, so ones are very sensitive to criticism. If you call them out on something, now you'll notice some of you are going, but I'm very sensitive to criticism, but uh, you know, like everyone has got a sensitivity to criticism, but ones are the most sensitive to it. It's their main sort of um, sensitivity. Their, um, um, pri their primary vice or pitfall, I mean, this is, uh, their vice is anger. Their primary pitfall is hypersensitivity. But they move and grow towards serenity. So ones, um, when, they, when they are mature, they're, they just, if, if you want to embrace kind of a calm sense of what is good and what is you know, hospitable. Ones are really amazing. Not like their hospitality might be a notch down from twos, but they're really just incredible um, in terms of the serenity that they can exude. The invitation of ones is to participate in goodness, to not embody goodness, to not assume that goodness is their right, but to be able to participate in it. And for that goes for a lot of the types that participation becomes the kind of primary focus. And this includes, for ones, because, okay, so one of the things I haven't mentioned is one's primary defense mechanism is reaction formation. And reaction formation is very interesting because it's, it's where you take the negative emotion and you transform it into positive emotion. Um, and that means, in some sense, denying the, 
the place of the negative. Which ha and the negative clearly must have a place. It can't be something that we just totally ignore. So ones will turn it into something positive. Sometimes, and you can see that sometimes reaction formation is when people are like overly sweet about something. You think, why, why are they being so nice? What are they hiding? There's something else going on there. Um, but the, so the invitation of ones is to actually include the role of the negative and to embrace anger as an important part of, of their, their being. That's, you know, there's a lot going on in terms of growth, which I'll get to next week, but that gives you a fair sense. And then to give you a, a few um, examples of ones in, in reality and then also in fiction, uh, my favorite philosopher, is a, a living philosopher, is a one, uh, Slavoj Žižek. Um, and then from history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Nelson Mandela, Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, Maggie Smith, the actress. And then in fiction, Gregory House. If you've ever seen House MD, you'll know this obsession with being right. It's a very one-ish thing. Uh, Professor X from the X-Men, Trinity from the Matrix, Hermione Granger from Harry Potter. So, the, I mean, you get, get a sense, ones are the, the good boys and girls of the Enneagram. It's kind of the, the short thing. Spock from Star Trek. Um, and then from the Bible, you all knew it, but Paul. Um, Paul is, and you see the Puritanism, Paul is struggling with this thing in himself. So he's like, grace, we need grace. And then occasionally he sounds like a, co a complete Puritan. It's, it's, in, it's because he's trying to wrestle with this, this thing in himself of like being perfect and right, but also just let go. It's not in your hands, okay? So that's a very uh, powerful thing. Which brings me to nines. Nines are known as the peacemakers. The image of a nine that I want to give you actually comes from a movie called Patterson, which is a wonderful movie. The lead character is called Patterson, and he lives in Patterson. And it's a very significant thing that the character is a kind of synecdotal kind of example of his environment, Nines feel more like environments than people often. They sort of blend, blend into things. And so the, the image is Patterson from this movie is a bus driver, and he's so contented, and he welcomes everyone. He's very sociable, but in a way that he sort of steps back. So he listens to everyone's conversations on the bus, but he doesn't participate. Um, nines uh, tend to not feel like their voice is actually worth listening to. And they kind of, they all their that their presence is actually not needed. So they tend to kind of blend, uh, blend very much with others. The wounding message of nines is exactly that: your opinions, wants, desires, and presence don't matter, and also don't ruffle any feathers. Nines are the peacemakers because they just, they really just are the best at keeping peace. Um, if you want a mediator, someone who can manage all the tensions of a very complicated situation, you need a nine. Um, a really good example of this is from, I don't know who of you have seen Bridge of Spies, if you want to see an amazing Spielberg film. The lead character there is a nine. He mediates an impossible conflict situation. And he does it with this kind of calm that I just, I mean, when I watched it, I just thought, this guy is amazing. Uh, because he, he just handled it. It's, it's a really amazing... Uh, thing and I mean it's based on a true story of, of a guy named James Ball, uh, James uh, Donovan. So the the um, the avoidance of nines is conflict, disagreement, and being unsettled. And their projection is that others are in conflict, others are in turmoil, they have issues. The nines' defense mechanism is not cotization. So it's 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 kind of to say this isn't happening. There is no problem. There is. No conflict. So they deaden their own emotional response to things. Um, and often that plays out in passive aggression. Remember that nines are part of the anger triad, so they, they tend to be a little bit passive aggressive. So they just sort of start being late instead of, you know, when they're a little angry. They just dawdle. Um, which fits. Um, the, the primary vulnerability, Vulnerability of nines is being neglected and being in a conflict situation. Nines will sometimes literally fall asleep in a conflict situation. They are one of the few types who can actually like totally tune out from conflict, which is 
both admirable and I'm sure a cause of ir for irritation for other uh, people. Um, the, uh, the vice of nines is sloth, uh, lethargy. A tendency, this plays out not as, as just plain laziness, it's more like um, they don't know how to prioritize things. If you don't have a very strong connection with your emotions, uh, it is very easy to be kind of caught up in, in other people's priorities and not your own. Nines also have a, a kind of inertia. They, they struggle to get going, but once they get going, they struggle to stop, that kind of thing. Um, and some really great examples of nines would be, um, oh, actually, I first want to talk about the invitation. The invitation of nines is to participate in peacekeeping and peacemaking with the inclusion of conflict. So conflict is part of peace. You have to embrace that. Um, examples from history and fiction would be the Dalai Lama, Barack Obama, Queen Elizabeth II, Morgan Freeman, and then from fiction, Colossus from the X-Men, Anakin Skywalker, Star Wars, we know how that goes. A very uh, unhealthy nine discovering that he does have some anger and becomes Darth Vader. Um, Marge Simpson, and then from the Bible, Jonah uh, is, a, is a classic nine. Which brings us to eights. Eights are known as the leaders or challengers, and the lens that they use is the lens of justice. So the image that I want to give you of an eight is a woman on the underground train, like telling a bunch of hooligans, armed hooligans off, without any attention to her own safety, only realizing later that she was vulnerable. Um, nines, uh, eights, sorry, have an incredibly incredibly so, a strong sense of justice and looking after the underdog. The wounding message of eights is that the world is hostile and only the strong survive. Eights have a very strong uh, physical energy. Uh, they, they, take up more, they take up a lot of space even if they're small in stature. Um, and I know, I know some eights like this and it's really just a, it's amazing how, how much presence um, they have. They avoid weakness and vulnerability at all costs, and their projection is that others are weak and dependent. And their, de their primary defense mechanism is really denial, which is the denial that they are vulnerable. Um, their primary vulnerability is feeling powerless and especially being treated unjustly. If they feel that injustice has been done to them, they do th that really gets to them. Their pitfall is, so in the Enneagram, they use these vices as an indication of, of, um, of where we kind of, what kind of thing we're trying to compensate for, but the vice always has a slightly different meaning. So eights have the vice of lust, but that doesn't mean lust in the usual sense that we know it. It means more like a lust for life. Um, eights are incredibly intense people. Uh, they... They speak in exclamation marks. Like everything is very, is very like direct and intense all the time. Um, and eights tend to overwork. There are a few types that, that have like a, a tendency towards um, using this energy that they have to just work way too hard. And eights are one of them. Uh, threes are the other um, that, that do this in particular. Um, the invitation of, actually, sorry, the virtue of eights is actually, if they move towards virtue, it's innocence. Because eights draw such strong lines, they overexpress instinct, so they draw these very strong lines. They actually do um, keep themselves innocent when they're mature. They, they, it's a way of, of you know, keeping evil out, as it were. Um, the invitation of eights is to participate in justice through being a conduit for mercy, through looking out for those who are powerless. Eights often, it's very interesting, eights often f have very close relationship with twos um, because they, they feel this inherent need to, to look after um, those who are perceived as being more vulnerable. Examples from history and fiction, uh, Serena Williams is an eight, Martin Luther King Jr., Pablo Picasso, not a pleasant eight at all, Saddam, Saddam Hussein, also not very pleasant, uh, Donald Trump is an eight. <laughs> Um, Angela Merkel, also, um, Jack Nicholson, and then from fiction, Wolverine, you knew it. There's so much anger there, right? Um, so just that also incredibly strong uh, energy also looks after the, the underdog, very strong sense of that. 
And so the vulnerability of AIDS, when AIDS actually get into, like, tap into that, is really, really profound thing. Um, and then Magneto, uh, Godzilla, the Hulk. And then from the Bible, Samson, Saul, and Deborah are, are all AIDS. Which brings me to the intellect triad, or head, this is the head triad. The primary issue for the head triad is fear. And the, the relationship that is distorted is the relationship with the world. So I call this also the self-world triad. Um, there's the, the same pattern as before. One un overexpresses, one underexpresses, and one is ambivalent about this particular relationship. Um, fives overexpress intellect, and they tend to underexpress their relationship with the world. And so, in a way, they, they, because this is the fear triad, they flee from fears into the intellect. They run away from the world into their heads. Um, fives also tend to have a bit of an otherworldly feel about them, um, and often elicit responses like, where do you come from? Um, sevens under-express intellect, um, and what that means is they tend to over-express their relationship uh, with the world. They run from internal fear into the world in a way, and simultaneously run from the world, uh, run away from their internal fears into the world. That's the, the, the trend. And then sixes are ambivalent about this relationship with the world and their intellects, which is um, that they distrust their own intellects and look for external support, but then they also tend to distrust the external support or authority or hierarchy in the world. So that's the trend there. By the way, what fear again... Uh, we dealt with anger. Anger is about boundaries. Fear is, is also in some sense about boundaries, but it's about recognizing the boundary between the self and the world. That should be fairly obvious. So sevens, that's the first of the intellect triad. They are the enthusiasts. By the way, every time I mention an image of these types, the image should, is a stereotype, but it should get you to at least think of the, the different um, options available. The image is someone sitting in a restaurant trying to decide what to pick on the menu whilst simultaneously wanting to sit at another table as well as thinking about which restaurant to go to next time. Um, the, so there's a kind of jumping about um, that happens with sevens, like there's, there's, the grass is greener somewhere else. The wounding message of sevens, though, is that they're on their own. And so they avoid pain and suffering at all costs. And, and this is why they, they are the, you know, the joyful type, the most sort of... Um, enthusiastic of the types in many ways because there's something to, they're running away from pain and suffering. The projection onto others is that others are party poopers, too serious, depressed, unimaginative, or people don't support my dreams uh, and the grass is every, greener everywhere but here. The primary defense mechanism of sevens is sublimation. By the way, I talk about these defense mechanisms and they, there is a negative to them. But they do serve a function, so they're not entirely negative. But the defense mechanism of sevens is sublimation, which is, let's go and look for that grass. Terrible things are here, but it's not all bad. Um, it, there's lots of good stuff too. The vulnerability of sevens, really, the primary one, is having limited options and having their balloons burst. Um, I, I have a student who's a seven, um, one of my postgrad students, and... If I give negative feedback to her, it's like she just switches off. It's really amazing because it's not great for her if she wants to grow, but just sort of the, the negative stuff just gets turned into something else. Um, the pitfall or vice of sevens is ego planning, scheming, and gluttony. Gluttony is not, again, it's not just for food. It's, it's for like more of, more of the amazing and the, the joyful and, and exciting. But the virtue of sevens is sobriety. Um, a really deep sense of, of what is real because sevens are able then in their mature state to m marry their intellectual gifts with their um, worldly experience. The invitation is to participate in joy and true joy comes from embracing suffering too. Um, it's part of life. Examples from history and fiction of sevens would include Epicurus as in Epicurean philosophy Mozart, Richard Branson, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Robert Downey Jr., Katy Perry. And then from fiction, Homer Simpson is an incredibly unhealthy seven. Uh, Kramer from Seinfeld, also pretty unhealthy. Deadpool, crazy unhealthy. And then from the Bible, King Solomon. Um, and then that brings us to sixes. Sixes, really in 
many ways embody the fear of the fear triad. That is their core sin, but they have the lens of loyalty. So sevens have the lens of joy, sixes have the lens of loyalty. If you want someone to stick by you no matter what, you need a six. They're the, the people that can do that. The image that I have of a six is the person in the, in the company that you work with who knows all the ins and outs of the system, exactly where to put your foot right and wrong, and how to please the boss and when the boss is going to have a bad day, when to stay away. They're just very attuned to, to hierarchy and authority structures, and they know how to like, look for stability within that. The wounding message of sixes is you don't have it in you to make it on your own, and you can't trust yourself. So sixes of all the types struggle the most with self-trust. Um, the avoidance of sixes is being disobedient and rebellious and being helpless and dependent. And so the projection of sixes is others are disobedient and they're inconsistent and untrustworthy. Sixes tend to perceive untrustworthiness in authorities, but it's mostly because they don't trust themselves. And that means that their primary defense mechanism is projection. It's, the, it's that everything, the problems are outside of them. And their primary vulnerability is any form of threat or challenge. Um, sixes can be incredibly fearful and paranoid even um, to all the, the terrible things that are going on. But for that reason, I tend to like look for safety in the world. They tend to understand that really well. Um, the vice or pitfall of sixes is ego cowardice. Um, it can manif manifest, this is an interesting one, sixes actually can manifest as a counter-type very easily. The counter-type is the counter-phobic six. So what you see is someone who looks a little bit like an eight. And they're very, like, they seek to dominate the environment and to appear not fearful. And they actually seem to be not fearful um, in many ways. But the motivation, and that's what the Enneagram points out, the motivation is still fear. Um, and that's, that's there. So the, the invitation of sixes is to be courageous. And that's the virtue of, uh, that they're moving towards. And to participate in God through trust and faith. So sixes, um, fear is there. But when they move to their virtue, their virtue is faith. It's faith and courage uh, in combination. So examples um, from history and fiction would include Freud, uh, Bono uh, the, uh, from U2, Eminem would be a good example of a counterphobic six. Ellen DeGeneres, um, Woody Allen. Woody Allen plays a six in every film that he's been in. And he tends to exaggerate the fearful side of sixes. So he's very jittery and all over the place. Um, so not all sixes manifest like that, obviously. But it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good stereotype if you want to work with one. Diana, Prince of Wales, would, um, was a six. Frodo from Lord of the Rings. So we're working into fiction here. Peter Parker from Spider-Man comics is a six, classic. Ron Weasley from Harry Potter. And then from the Bible, you have the phobic six would be Timothy, very loyal and obedient, uh, working with, with Paul. And then the counterphobic would be uh, St. Peter. Now for fives. Um, these uh, fives work with the lens of wisdom. And it's the lens of, um, of perceiving seeing things clearly and, ten and from above usually, in some sense, trying to look for the whole picture. They are, they are um, the observers or investigators. And fives often sit at, at the back of a room very much like Steve at the moment. Um, so there's, they, there's a lot, you very seldom see fives sitting right in the front row, right in front of a, a speaker because there's too much energy here. Um, fives want to sort of move away from where all the energy is because, and that's a big issue. I know because I'm a five. Um, twos and image types, um, which we'll get to. Uh, um, yeah, so um, the image, well, that's the image. Someone at the back of a room who is absorbing everything. I'm a little frustrated that the speaker doesn't know as much about the topic that, as they do. And possibly, um, or if the speaker does know an enormous amount about the topic, they're getting so excited about going home to check what they know and then read 17 books about the same thing. 
I wonder what that's like. It's, it's amazing, actually, really. Um, the wounding message of fives is you don't have the resources to handle relationships and you are not prepared for life. And so they avoid looking foolish, being emptied or being empty. So the, the five is particularly um, conscious of being drained by people. Oh, I've had, I've had a bit too many people today. That's like a, a common thing. The two types on the Enneagram that have the least energy are nines and fives. Fives and nines need a lot of sleep. Fives have more measured energy. Nines just at some point will just find that they don't have energy. And then they just sleep, you know. So there's this tendency to feel drained. Um, so um, the projection of fives is others are ignorant, foolish, and they haven't thought through things enough. Which is very different from, so ones have this intellectual thing, but they're going, they're wrong. Fives are going, they're wrong, but it's because they haven't thought through the thing. Um, so that's, that's slightly different. And the defense mechanism of fives is compartmentalization, as in, Emotions and experiences get compartmentalized or isolation, moving away from people, and actually kind of retreating into themselves. The primary vulnerability of fives is being invaded, looking ridiculous um, or being made to look foolish. And the pitfall of, of fives is ego stinginess or emotional stinginess. Um, five, a very interesting thing about fives, they have lots of friends and those friends have never met each other. It's just one of those... Compartmentalization. Everything in life is kept in safe little boxes. Torsten is finding this very funny. I wonder what that's about. Um, so um, the, the virtue of fives is non-attachment. Is to be able to see things at a distance and to not be attached to specific, uh, a specific outcome. And so for this reason, fives tend to, in this, this is problematic language, they tend to be the most objective of all the types. Examples from history... Actually, let me mention the invitation of fives is to participate in real wisdom, and real wisdom is embodied. Fives tend to have a, a fairly ambivalent relationship with their bodies, and to really be wise, you have to embrace embodied experience and action especially. So examples from history and fiction, a ton of philosophers. This is not to say that every five is an intellectual. Annie Leibovitz is a five, and she is a, a, just this amazing photographer. But it's, everything is kept at a distance and it's observed. That's one of the things. But tons of philosophers of fives, um, Aquinas, Heidegger, Nietzsche, Hegel, and then from, well, I don't know, fiction slash legend, Merlin, Dumbledore um, from Harry Potter, Beast from X-Men, Morpheus from The Matrix, Bruce Banner from Marvel, Loki from Marvel Universe. Loki is a very unhealthy five. And then from the Bible, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Thomas, Zacchaeus, and I'm pretty sure because he's barking mad, Ezekiel. Um, which brings me, at last, to the values triad, or the feeling triad, also known as the heart triad. This is the, the, the primary issue for these types is shame. Shame is also a boundary-setting um, emotion, but... Whereas anger is setting boundaries for other people, shame sets boundaries for yourself. So the, and specifically in relation to others. So I also call this the self-other triad. For these types, persona is a major issue since it is the dominant way that they have developed to cope with the world. Their personality itself is the coping mechanism. And so this is very, it's, by the way, um, these are the most sensitive types to the Enneagram. This is a horrible thing for them to have to go through. Um, I'm, a, I'm aware of this. Because, because I'm you know, pointing out things that you, you know, your personality isn't real. For someone for whom it is the primary source of coping, that's a tough thing to hear. Uh, in a sense, they've lost contact with reality, and then they try to reclaim it by being enough. So the, the question of enoughness is very much an image... Um, uh, sorry, I also call them the image triad. There are lots of names for this, um, as you will tell from the 400 billion books on the Enneagram that are out there. So, uh, so image is a very important thing, how they appear to others. Um, all of these types uh, yeah, have, have a very strong issue with rejection and shame. You'll, you'll hear that coming up. And the primary focus is therefore the relationship with others and the big other, the collective other. 
Twos tend to overexpress the value system of others, and so they tend to be caught up in the emotions and values of others without necessarily being overly aware of their own state. They hide from shame by focusing on others. Fours underexpress the value system of others, and then they tend to be caught up in their own emotions, and they feel shame for not being concerned enough about others. That's a, a constant uh, question because fours are very empathic and sensitive, but at the same time, uh, tend towards self-absorption. And then threes are out of touch with their own value system. So th the weird thing is threes are part of the emotional, like heart triad, but they're actually quite out of touch with their emotions. Um, there, there's a, a kind of ambivalence there about em the emotional and values world. So let me start with fours. Their lens is the lens of beauty, the personal touch. This, the way that fours intervene in the world is to try and bring their authentic self to whatever they do and to bring their own sense of personhood to, to um, their experiences of the world. So the image that I have of fours is, the this is a cliche and I realize fours are, the, uh, are obsessed with authenticity. So the fact that I'm using this kind of a cliche is highly problematic. But um, the lonely artist working on the next idea or artwork or challenge or poem trying to figure out why they weren't invited to that party last Saturday by those people that they thought they liked or that, that liked them. So there's this question of missing out, which is the primary issue for fours. Fours feel like they're missing out on things even when they're not. The wounding message of fours is that no one understands them and that they don't belong. And so they avoid ordinariness and inauthenticity. They hate hypocrisy more than any of the other types. They're just very attuned to people being hypocrites because their authenticity is so important to them. Their primary defense mechanism, very interesting one, is introjection. Introjection is, uh, because fours are sensitive to rejection, they tend to assume the negative emotion about, of someone else as something that is being said of themselves to prepare them for when they get rejected. To say basically, there was a reason why that person rejected me. I am not enough. Because that's so, I mean, it's a lie, but that's, that's the, the tendency. And so you'll notice I'm talking about trends and tendencies. Not everyone uh, will manifest these or like express these in the same way. Um, the projection of fours is others are unrefined, ordinary, and hypocritical uh, because they're avoiding ordinariness and hypocrisy. Um, so that's the problem that other people have. And their primary um, vulnerability is abandonment, not being noticed and recognized, not being accepted for who they are, really. Their vice is envy. Now, envy, again, often is I'm envious of that person because they have X, Y, and Z. Fours are envious in general. So something's missing, and it belongs to everyone. And everyone has this thing that's missing, but it's unnamed and difficult to locate. But when fours mature, they move towards equanimity. And especially in stressful situations, fours are able to handle stress with a, an amazing amount of emotional equilibrium, even though they are arguably the most emotionally turbulent of the types. The invitation of fours is to participate in the origin, or gods, to embrace the ordinary. The ordinary is, is actually okay, and should be. Examples from history and fiction um, of fours would include Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard's life story is, is like the, the stereotypical unhealthy four, uh, if you want to ever check that out. Hans Christian Andersen, Kierkegaard's contemporary, um, and, well, they knew each other. I'm not sure if they were friends, but anyway. Thomas Merton, uh, the amazing uh, writer and uh, mystic. Virginia Woolf, Alanis Morissette, Johnny Depp, uh, and then from fiction, Harry Potter, um, Edward Scissorhands, and then from the Bible, Joseph and Jeremiah. And so then that brings us to threes. We're nearly there. Okay. Threes have the lens of productivity. The motivators, the achievers, the go-getters, they're out there just doing amazing things. And you know, the image of threes um, that I want to give you is the superhero has just saved the day and is now basking in the light of cameras as they flash to take photos of their achievement, uh, of them because of their achievement. The classic three type in a movie I saw recently is Miss Sloan. Um, it's an astonishing film and, and you see like 
three-ishness in at its best and its worst. It's really, really incredible. The wounding message that threes receive is you are, you are what you do. You are how you perform and how people perceive you. And so their blind spot is failure and inefficiency. And their projection is that others are failures and they're inefficient. And they're not getting to the point quick enough. And also there are probably very few threes here because they're out there just taking over the world. Um, their primary defense mechanism is identification. Because the, the vice of threes is deceit or vanity, they tend to blend. So you can listen to a three talking to one person and they talk a certain way and then they're talking to someone else and they've changed their tone and they're a different person. That's very three-ish. Um, they, they're a bit chameleonic. Um, their primary vulnerability is rejection and failure, just like twos and fours have that. Have that. Their pitfall is ego, vanity, uh, deceit, narcissism even. But when threes are very stable, and specifically when they're in a very sta stable environment, they, they have the virtue of truthfulness. They will say the truth, even if it upsets you, and they're okay with that. Their invitation is to participate in truth and hope. And so a really good example of a mature three is Oprah Winfrey. Um, very accommodating, represents, that's something that I would say a three represents people represents the other and, and their community in an amazing way. Um, Will Smith is a three. Uh, Superman. Uh, a lot of superheroes are three. So Superman, Captain America, Wonder Woman. They're kind of just like all-rounder. Everything is kind of perfect. How did they do that? Um, and from the Bible, unfortunately, a lot of negatives. Jacob, Judas, Pilate, and I think possibly uh, David, King David. Okay. Uh, last one. So that's, and so as I said, twos are the ones that are the least likely to talk about themselves. And so I, I kind of wanted to, to land on this. It makes sense in terms of the structure of the Enneagram, but this will, um, this will help, I think, to clarify what they're about. Twos have the lens of love. There should be more love in the world. They are the helpers. Their entire existence is about others. They live for others' well-being. The image of a two that I want to give is the hotel manager who's always somehow a little bit in the background, a little above everyone else, yet keenly attentive to the needs of others, keenly attuned to how they might be perceived. Twos want to look good. They impress, they impress others by serving them. But the wounding message of twos is having or expressing your own needs will lead to humiliation and rejection. Uh, and so they avoid their own needs all the time, as much as possible. Um, and this is so dangerous because the demands that others place on you can be infinite. Um, and and you need, there needs to be some sort of a, an end to that. The projection of twos is that others are in need. Others don't have enough love and they don't love enough. The primary defense mechanism of twos is repression. They repress their own needs. And their primary vulnerability is um, rejection. Their vice, this is an interesting one, their vice is pride. Well, that seems really weird. Like people who serve others all the time are prideful? Well, yes, because they assume that they are the ones that can meet those people's needs. And it is prideful to think that you do not have your own needs. It's um, So... The virtue of humility manifests in twos when they start to recognize that they have their own personhood and that they are valuable. They are enough. Um, the invitation uh, to twos is to participate in grace by letting themselves be loved. So great examples from history. And look, twos, because they serve others, they tend to just, they just tend to look saintly. Uh, Desmond Tutu uh, Monica Lewinsky, um, if you listen to Monica Lewin Lewinsky's, uh, one of my favorite TED Talks was given by her. She talks about shame and vulnerability and just incredible, um, an incredible person. Um, Mother Teresa, um, Josh Groban, Juliette Binoche, and then from fiction, Sirius Black, Dr. McCoy from Star Trek, uh, and then from the Bible, Mary Magdalene, Martha, John, as I have hinted, and Jesus is probably a two. Um, 
if, if you look at the historical Jesus, there's so much two-ishness going on there. So that is, that, that's, that's that. I made it. That's 50 minutes, and not, not too bad. <clears throat> but, um, so, if you, that, if, those of you who've never heard of the Enneagram, do you kind of have a feeling for where you fit? That is really amazing, because I was like, oh, yeah, so if you don't, one of the ways to start is to figure out which triad you're in. So, do you fit in the gut, the instinct triad? The difficult thing here is that um, you, one of the types of each of the triads is out of touch with the thing that they're actually, so if nines don't know that they're angry. Once they get in touch with that anger, they can start like taking action. Sixes don't often know that they're afraid. Threes don't know that they're, that they're ashamed. So th that's difficult, but it's helpful to kind of figure out which triad you fit in. And then it's also very helpful to figure out Figure, excuse me, figure out which types you are not. I think that's, like, you can at least cross those off your list. Um, and then figure out um, how each type relates to each other. I'm, I'm going to talk more about that next week. So, the, the thing that you're absolutely not may be the thing you're repressing. Maybe the thing you're hiding from yourself that's sort of lurking in your unconscious. So that's something I will be talking about in the next in the next um, talk, which is is that um, like what we're hiding from ourselves and how to integrate as people. What I can say is you you can also listen to I, I do have a very long series on the Enneagram on my podcast, which if you go into iTunes or it's also on Android platforms. You can just search Unorthodoxy podcast, and you can you can check out my series on the Enneagram there. But now is a good time for questions if you have. Any. Sorry, just for, for next week, uh, this probably doesn't exist, but is there a nice, simple, online, free you know, uh, test that we can Yeah, buy? okay. Or is that not the way to go to figure out? Interestingly enough, uh, if you're doing a Myers-Briggs sort of test, that's, that's usually fairly, fairly accurate. The Enneagram tests I find not accurate, because there's too much detail and depth in the Enneagram to for a test to account for. The, the Enneagram at, a test at similarminds.com is one of the better ones I've found. Um, what's also, there's quite a nice critique of the, of, of the Enneagram there. Like, the, the core thing for any personality typing thing is what is it trying to achieve? What is it for? So it's very important to use it for its purpose. So I would say that if you want to read more in depth about the types, um, just trying to think, uh, the, I'm, uh, it's Risso and Hudson's site, the, the, what is, the Enneagram Institute, thank you. Um, they've got really great descriptions of each type, and um, I was trying to, that's the thing that I was trying to do is kind of give a shorthand, and I think projection is an interesting one, where you actually look about, like, what do you complain about often? Um, it's not enough. By the way, it's negative, right? Like, so those of you who are averse to negativity are going to really struggle with this. But it's really helpful to focus on that stuff because that will give you an indication of, of kind of where you fit. Um, but yeah, check out, I think, the Enneagram Institute for overviews of each type. There, there are shorter descriptions and then longer descriptions. And then you can listen to my podcast, which I think there are 10, there are 10 episodes. And this is like the shortcut, yeah. I just think maybe in terms of self-typing, the way that the different types speak. Okay, yeah, that's very that's very helpful. Each type speaks in quite a distinctive way. Um, when they're left to, so this is not to denigrate like the or put down everyone's individual uniqueness. The enneagram, like any typing system, is a frame, but the types do speak in a particular way. Ones speak. Um, in, in rules and rule keeping and tend to occasionally bark. Um, so there's, there's a tendency to be very definitive about what is right and wrong um, in the ways that um, ones speak. Nines, their, their talk style is epic saga. So left to their own devices, they tell stories and they just go on and they lose track of, they lose connection with their bodies and they just float off into fantasy land. And sort of move into epic saga. Um, eights talk in exclamation marks about everything. Uh, 
look, Trump. Trump is a very unhealthy eight, and uh, so so he. But you you hear that very distinctly in the way that he talks. If sorry, and the way he tweets, it's like um, the 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 eights talk style is shoot first, ask questions later. It's a it, it's fire, ready aim. It's that sort of approach. Um, sevens are talking anecdotes. Like lots of like little stories about their experiences, and because sevens tend to have such a wide range of experiences, their stories um, can be quite quite interesting. Sixes um, talk improvisos and disclaimers, and hit, like they like constantly going well. And oh, by the way, what I'm saying, I'm not saying. So there's this. I have a six, a bit of a six wing, so I'm also aware of 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 that in myself. Um, fives teach and explain. Things lecture. and lecture, they tend to want to, and I call the talk style of fives mapping. They tend to always take what's being said and they they're trying to fit it into some elaborate, complex framework in their heads. The struggle of fives is that they don't know how to speak with only one mouth because there's never just one thought that's happening. Um, the alien who has five mouths and can speak five different languages and then elaborate like the polyphonic stream of thinking that each of those streams has that's fives that's what the the frustration is oh i have so much and i just can't give you everything uh fours um talking lament poetic lament often things are never great um and the tendency is to complain about stuff but they're attuned to beauty so they also tend to praise what is authentic and beautiful in the world and they're very very empath empathic so their talk style will be very empathic in the way that they c communicate threes talk in sales pitch um, they're selling themselves they are the product but also if you want to be convinced that something is just amazing and you should buy into it too threes have that um, they're the motivators. So I, one of my students from a few years ago uh, is a three of a remarkable... I, I've never seen anyone change the feeling of a room like that guy. Walks into a room and the whole mood lifts. Margie might know who I'm talking about. <laughs> the whole room just suddenly picks up. The motivator, he, the three represents the others. And they pick out all the best qualities of everyone and they represent that. That's why Oprah is also such, like, the motivator. Can Come on. Twos talk in other people's needs. They're so attuned to how, what other people need more than those people know themselves. They're just, like, what do you need? And, and so there's a very compassionate way um, of talking. Um, their speech style is also very affectionate in, in that way. Even with strangers, they, they, they tend to communicate... They tend to be quite, in a way, vulnerable when they're talking, but not in a way that really acknowledges their own needs. It really does. I have a few two friends. When I ask them how they are, they change the subject. <laughs> I'm like, you can tell me how you are. It's really fine. Uh, but they, no, nope, change the subject. That's something else. So, yeah. Once? Uh, once, sorry, I started with once. Once, uh, it's, it's preaching. And what is just? <laughs> it's difficult. I think Chesterton is a five. Um, when you think of the ones, ten, like the difference between five, fives and ones are often confused. Uh, fives are lighter. Um, Chesterton ha um, was a very big man, but he had a like. So he, yeah, there are reasons for that. But he had a very high voice, and he tended to um, talk about a whole range of subjects. Whereas ones tend to have a, like the bandwagon. Thing. They, they tend to get stuck in one area and just um, pave the way for that thing. So fives will have their fingers in. This, I mean, if you look at the, the a good example is my, my talks. <clears throat> you will never know what I'm going to talk about next. And that's true for me too. There are two questions here. I think we've got, yeah. Okay, uh, quick question, uh, sort of a personal one. Because uh, working with this, it can easily become, I've got a very critical approach. So... One can become very uh, mechanistic in your human approach. Yes. So the cults, uh, concept of power language can be, you know. Oh, yes. So how do you stay away? For instance, do you take the genogram into consideration during the Enneagram? Uh, you know, it's like 
Look, I, I, I think that the general, my approach is I, I try to resist typing people. Sometimes I can't help it because I notice these patterns. Rima understands another five over there. So there's this, um, so there's this tendency to, to what I, my rule is try not to type people. Try and listen to them on their own terms. And if this can help you be more compassionate towards people, if it can help you to really understand their inner motivations a bit better so that you have better space for them, then use it. If you start to become critical about people, leave it. Um, there are other typology. Yeah, the, the, this is for yourself. This is for your self-growth. Um, and I would never presume to tell anyone else that this is what they must do to grow. These are ways forward that may help. That's where the telegram comes in. The yeah, I don't know. Self-story, you know, how it, the self-story, how it develops. Yeah. Um, um, so you know if you have a main type and a wing type? Yes. Can your wing type take precedence of your main type in certain situations? Or is it always just like it's all it's always one and then the other what is interesting is um during when you're younger during adolescence it's often you might actually mistype as your wing i would by the way say to younger people as in people below, below 20 not to even try this because in a way it, the enneagram can kind of spoil the like spoil the discovery like don't try and just tell yourself who you are but your your wing yes your wing will manifest but your dominant type is still going to be the thing that drives the, the way that the wing acts. You won't become the wing, if that um, makes any sense.